we are exploring Genesis 1 through 11, uh, which is really um, everything that follows in Scripture and everything really uh, that um, speaks to existence uh, under the creative work of God uh, is found in these first 11 chapters. And today we begin our first part uh, in a significant story, uh, and that is a story that is so familiar uh, that I think we often think of it almost as the story that we remember from Sunday school as kids, uh, because kids love animals, and we like the idea of, the moment I think of the flood, I just, I think of like a million children's illustrations of a boat with like a giraffe head sticking out the window. Like that's like what I think about. Uh, But obviously there's tremendous significance and divine importance, um, things that should both strike fear and awe and wonder into our hearts. Um, Because this is a story that is both a story of God's judgment, but it is the judgment of humanity um, that also uh, becomes the, the thing that is held in the very grace of God, God's divine purposes to stay faithful to the very word that he spoke to the woman at the fall, that the seed of the serpent would be destroyed and the seed of the woman would ultimately be victorious. What we have in the flood is God's destruction of the serpent's seed um, as well as his preservation of the woman's seed. Um, But there's more than that in this story and there's a lot that we need to think about uh, when it comes to this. So today we're going to be wrapping up uh, the remainder of chapter 6 in the beginning of this of this incredible story, uh, and, it's, and it's one that um, we need to think very carefully through because it is a story that, that reminds us of the significance um, of the fact that God is a God who is incredibly merciful, um, but there is a severity as well in God's judgment and His, um, his patience does have um, a point where the door will close uh, and that he takes sin seriously. And that is something that I think in our particular age where right and wrong seems to be determined by the individual um, and right and wrong is something that uh, is relative, uh, we have lost our sense Um, of the fact that there will be a day when each one of us will stand before God and we will give an account for what we have thought, what we have said, and what we have done. And that isn't something that, I don't know about you, that I'm like, oh, that's going to be the best day of my life. Um, Now, the beauty of being covered by the grace of Jesus is that all sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven. But that doesn't mean that our lives and what we do with our lives and what it means to be God's elect, uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't significance with what we do with our lives. And one of the things we will see with, with Noah as one of God's elect vessels, that is one of the vessels by which God fulfills his redemptive purposes in human history, is that the election aligns with Noah's obedience. Um, and his fulfillment and this is one of the great components of scripture is that God takes this incredible risk why does he need a human person who has fallen to fulfill his purposes Um, I mean I would feel far more comfortable if God's redemption of the world his salvation of the world would not be laid upon the shoulders of a single person who himself has fallen as we'll see later at the end of the fall the first thing that Noah does is build his plant a vineyard and get himself drunk so he is not perfect by any means uh, so why would he do this because God's intent and why it is intent I cannot say this is one of the great mysteries that God has chosen to not exist without you and I that it is the very judgment that falls upon all flesh that actually uh, speaks to the necessity of an understanding of grace. That God, because of His nature, 
It is His nature to love sinners in their sin, but it is also His nature to not leave us there. And that is a profound reality. I love um, what Bruce Waltke um, says in regards to uh, the communion of Enoch and Noah and those that followed God. That communion with, when communion of God is restored, their deliverance from death is bound to follow. And, and I think that this is a beautiful thing that we will be considering today in great depth. The other thing I want to say about the flood is that for those of you who are like, well, did it happen? I, I think that A, there's so many flood narratives uh, in the ancient world. Uh, and the, the, the fact that there are so many flood narratives and in, in many, many myths within ancient cultures speaks to myth always carries with it truth. And the difference, though, between the flood narratives of Mesopotamia and Babylon um, is that the gods are somewhat fickle. They have no interest in sharing the information with humans to be participants in salvation. Um, and their only desire is to reduce population. <laughs> That's essentially, if you look at some of the Mesopotamian myths around the flood, the difference in the Genesis account is that the flood is the direct outcome of the evil of humanity, not the fickleness of God. And the flood account also shows a God who is willing to share his concern, his frustration, and his plans with a human conduit, creating the possibility of redemption and salvation. Um, I have no problem with the, con with the idea of the flood because the Scripture declares it, and it's declared again and again. Even Jesus Himself references the flood when speaking about His own return. He says the world will be very much like the world was when Noah was on the earth. He doesn't speak about Noah as if it was just some sort of, um, some sort of parable, but He speaks of it as historical fact. And he says this in Luke 17, verses 26-30, it says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until that day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And Jesus is speaking of His return. And isn't this the very thing that Peter says? He says, everyone will be saying, where is this, the promise of the return of Jesus? And they will basically say, let's just eat and drink because He's clearly not coming back. And it's, this is one of those passages that is meant for us as Christians, and I think of the church almost as a type of ark, um, as, as a responsibility upon us to live with an eternal perspective. That the story is going somewhere, and that the Jesus we follow, yes, He came as the humble servant who laid down His life for lost sinners, but He will return as the triumphant King and judge of the creation that belongs to Him. And that is something that we must take seriously, and it is something that um, I say unapologetically because it is the proclamation and the great hope of the church from its beginning. So, uh, when people ask me, do you think that the world was flood? Um, do you think there was a real flood? And I'll say, yes. And they're like, was it global or was it local? And I'll just simply say, I don't care. Because the primary point of this is God is taking sin seriously and there is real judgment and there is real redemption. And that point is something that is, that is universal and continues to be a point that we must consider in great detail today. The world belongs to the Lord, um, and He can create and He can uncreate. Um, and that is a profound reality um, that we must take into consideration. So, 
Let's begin with this text, and we're going to begin in verses 9 through 11. And we're going to begin with what I refer to as the mercy and severity of God and the righteousness and blamelessness of Noah. Uh, and I use mercy and severity because this is the proclamation of, of um, Paul in Romans um, chapter 11. Consider the mercy and the severity of God, the severity and goodness of God. Um, that there is this, this harmony. His goodness, His immovable goodness, is actually the thing that is severe. <laughs> um, it is... It is a severe grace. That is that God's character, unlike ours, is not wavering. Uh, and we are so fickle. Uh, and, and our lives um, are, 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 are ever changing and fluxing in our attitudes and um, in our spirits. And when that comes into contact with the one who is truth, uh, that, is, that carries with it both a severity, but it also carries with it the thing that we need the most, which is our redemption, our grace, our hope. This is the reality of our God. And it says this in verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold I will destroy them with the earth now I, I want you to remember uh, the last teaching that we considered which was that peculiar passage that speaks of the sons of God or angelic or spiritual beings actually taking to themselves the daughters of man. That, in other words, that there was an unholy union that took place. The seed of the serpent um, had taken root and the world, what's so fascinating is the creation story in God's, good, in God's good narrative, what are we told is that again and again He tells the creation, the living beings, to be, He blesses them and says be fruitful and what? Multiply. What does the seed of the serpent as it enters into the human narrative and takes root in the human heart, what is the, what is the action of humanity? Um, and just so you know, um, that continues to be a problem. And by the way, what is stated here about, about humanity, that the intentions of the human heart is wicked and set upon evil, um, is stated again after the flood. But with the, the difference is that God says, I will never again destroy my creation um, in this way. This will never happen again. There will not be another flood as a means of decreation, even though the human heart is still corrupt. And that's what I said, that the judgment becomes um, the very necessity um, of grace, or none of us would have hope at all. Uh, but I think that this is the thing that we need to remember, is that as Jesus himself refers to our enemy. We need a much better understanding. Um, in a material world, even as Christians, we often find ourselves, I can't tell you how many teachers I've heard that almost seem apologetic for supernatural realities or spiritual realities. Like it's, a, it's an intellectual embarrassment uh, for us modern, sensible people. But are we that sensible? Did the Age of Enlightenment really create the progress that we had all hoped. Because I would agree, and maybe it is my deep love of the Inklings um, and their absolute obsession uh, with everything before enlightenment, uh, which is this idea that the ancient world was not more primitive, but the ancient world actually had a much deeper understanding of the things around them because they saw 
in the world that there was divine meaning behind things. That, these, that the sun carried with it symbol that infused people with wonder because they saw divine significance. When they looked at the stars, they didn't just see stars. They saw them as, as angelic hosts. There, in other words, there was, a, there was a symmetry of what is seen and what is unseen. There was an understanding of what is considered spiritual as well as material. And those two worlds overlapped in a much more profound um, and I would argue deeper way in which as we eradicated the spiritual, what we have created is a bunch of insane enigmas around existence because we have drained the world of its magic. And, and, and it has created an insanity, a madness. Um, and, it, and it's also created all sorts of ways that we can't explain um, reality uh, because, because it will always come up against a wall because it is always an attempt to explain what can be seen. Um, you know, the concept of empirical evidence. And that's why I always like to use quantum mechanics as the great like wrench in the machinery of of uh, rational thinking um, from a scientific perspective is that everything about quantum mechanics breaks the rules of science. It doesn't play with time correctly. You know, have you ever heard of Schrodinger's cat? The cat is both dead and alive at the same time. And, and Einstein hated it. He was like, this is, I can't accept this because there's no actual explanation. That, that's a, that is a paradox, it's an impossibility, it's a contradiction in terms. But everything about quantum mechanics is built upon contradiction. And yet it's the very basis of the computer. We know that it works, but scientists can't tell you how it works. I think Christians should be just as comfortable saying, I can't tell you how all of this works, but my life has evidence that it does. I don't see any difference. And so I feel like it's intellectually dishonest to say, you know, when I see the signs in people's yards that say, you know, I believe in, it's like, it's, it's like this, this diatribe of like love and acceptance and inclusion. But at the end, it's like the, the weird one, I believe in science, which is just another way of saying, I don't believe in Christianity. Or Christianity is the, you know, the excesses of an archaic past that should, that should be tossed aside, um, that people should not be beholden uh, to the fear of a moral God because we are the definers of our own morality. Well, if Portland is, um, Portland is the poster child of the insanity of thought without God. And I, and I would argue that we, uh, probably above any city in the U.S., you know, we're the first state to decriminalize um, all drugs. And all these states, all these progressive states have been watching to see what would happen. And I, did you guys read the article that just came out like a, a week ago about the absolute failure of this, of this, the passing of this law? And that, and that even liberals have recognized that it's actually, it's hurting commerce, um, that the whole goal, the whole belief was if we decriminalize and we actually give millions and millions of dollars to, um, to put people into rehab, um, that we're gonna, instead of putting them in jail, they're gonna, that we're gonna see incredible fruit. Well, what we found was actually less people went to rehab because often when you're an addict, you need something as severe as I actually need to be put into a place where I do not have access to drugs long enough to have the clarity of mind to say yes to any kind of help. Um, and so there's this, so now there's an attempt to keep the, the, the money funded for uh, rehabilitation, which I am absolutely for, um, but also the recognition that there should be consequences to, uh, to these harder drugs like fentanyl and meth because they aren't people aren't just going to get off and especially when we are doing everything we can to make it as easy for them as possible to continue to kill themselves all of this done under the false guise of mercy and concern i am starting to feel conspiracy theory level concern that the real desire is to help these people kill themselves that's my deepest fear 
I'm like, I feel like I'm in like some sort of dystopian Aldous Huxley novel where it's like, like, we love you here, fentanyl. It's like, we might as well just be giving them guns with bullets in them and saying, it won't hurt you. Just aim it at your head. It won't hurt you. That's essentially what we're doing. This is the insanity of a world that is very much like Noah's world. And that is where God is one who creates and says, be fruitful and multiply. We have taken the lie, instead of the words of Jesus, I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. We have taken the framework of Satan. I have come to give you death and to give it to you abundantly. And I think that this is something that we need to pay attention to. Do we understand that the violence um, that, is, that is all around us is infused with demonic inspiration? People always say, like, how do you know the difference between someone that's mentally ill um, or demonically oppressed or demonized? And I would say that those worlds are those are overlapping worlds because we're told that the entire world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And let me just tell you, Satan's greatest work is in the pew of Christians. It's in the pew. His greatest work to be like, well, if you're a Christian, you can't be demonized. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that. And I'm not saying, you, like, I'm not saying you're going to act like the exorcists. You know, the girl, like, I've never seen anyone's head spin around and vomit green, although I have seen a couple things that were close to that, um, but not in church. But what I have seen is, is people listening to Satan's system, which is you are your own God. You have the right to criticize. You have the right to cut down. You have the right to backbite. You have the right to take what is not yours. You have the right to refuse to be of service to others. All of those things are your rights. You don't have to listen to, and you should be offended by the idea that there is a God who actually has the final say. You don't think Christians believe those lies? I, I know we do. I know that I have. Because this is the nature of the human heart. And when I see this, passage now the earth was corrupt in god's sight and filled with violence what is the supreme rise of a of a empire uh, which by the way america has been an empire for a while now uh, but what is what is the, two of the significant signs of a collapse of an empire right before it collapses well i would say there's three i would say number one um, is in an increase um, acceptance and even celebration of violence. Uh, I would say an absolute obsession with entertainment uh, and spectacle. Uh, like anyone should be surprised that we elected a reality show person for president. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. And I'm not, I'm not making a commentary on Trump. I'm saying the fact that that actually happened is just part of our we are a culture driven by spectacle. We, we love the spectacle. And then people were surprised when he acted like a reality star, which was bombastic and loud. Once again, this isn't a commentary on whether what he, was he good or bad? I'm not, I'm not here. I will continue to be as nebulous as possible. I don't trust anybody that actually thinks that they should run a country. <laughs> and I'm not an anarchist. I'm just saying anyone that wants to be president of the United States of America, there's some serious narcissism going on. Like that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. If I said, I'm going to be go for president, you're like, you should question that. Like, and why do you think you should run the most powerful country in the world? It takes a certain kind of ego to be a president, doesn't it? Uh, but, but I think that this, this, this reality, but then consider this, not just the rise of violence and the rise of, of uh, spectacle and entertainment. And by the way, this is, if you want to look at the history of, of human empires, this is, this is a pattern that is totally repeatable and easily provable. <laughs> uh, the Roman Empire, right before its collapse, these were the three primary 
issues that undergirded the whole thing. The third one is the absolute acceptance of rampant sexual immorality. And I think it's interesting that the, t the two things that Scripture tells us to flee from is idolatry and sexual immorality. It's kind of funny because idolatry sort of encompasses everything. But it's interesting to me that the Scripture puts such an emphasis on sexual immorality because it is, a, because it is a, a, an attack upon the very, uh, the very house of God, the temple of God, which is, do you not know that you are the temple of God? Uh, so these are the marks of Satan's kingdom. He doesn't want you to think about anything serious. He wants you to give yourself to decreation, not creation. Uh, and, and he wants you to abuse what is the very sanctuary of God. And where has our nation um, surpassed? I, I just will say, I've been watching this TV show and uh, um, Darcy said, don't talk about the TV show in tomorrow's sermon. And I, I'm not going to, Darcy. But I'm going to say this statement about it. I was bothered by the first season because there was no swearing in it and I'm like I can't take this seriously like that's not how people talk there's no way that they would talk like that like you know that like that's this is this is it's it's uh it's been it's been sanctified in a way that I find a little like it's off-putting I don't trust this and it just spoke to my own the desensitizing of my own spirit and mind that for the first two episodes, it bothered me that it was so clean because it seemed like that's not real life. That just shows how far we have gone as a culture. Now, I just wanna be honest, it's still not real life, but <laughs> it shouldn't bother me <laughs> that I haven't been bombarded with foul language and, and rampant nudity. Like, that shouldn't bother me. That should be, you know, maybe a hope of a Christian that there's actually good entertainment out there that doesn't need to shock and to inundate our minds with violence and sexuality and all of these things that our culture is so mad. When people are like, America is the greatest country of all history. I'm like, we're so awesome. We have given the world pornography, the atomic bomb, and McDonald's. And yes, we have given the world other things too, and like all things, it is mixture. But this is very similar, I would argue, to the state of affairs that we have in the time of Noah. Now I want you to notice this, um, enough on that. I want you to notice this. Uh, Noah walked with God. So this is a reference back to Enoch, that Enoch walked with God and he did not see death. And there is this reminder that, yes, through the line of Cain and through the corruption that has entered, there are still people that are calling out to the name of God. And when it says that he walked with God, it's saying that he had intimacy with God. Now, what the Scripture does not tell us, what the story does not tell us is, what does that mean? How did he hear from God? How did God speak to him? It doesn't tell us that because that's not what's important. What's telling us is that Noah had an intimacy with the living God in which he was known and he knew. And that is something that is a beautiful and profound thing. The two other things is that he is considered righteous and blameless. This is the first mention of those words in Scripture. And anytime there's a first mention of significant words like righteousness, or blamelessness, um, they, they're something that we should take note of. And what does righteousness mean? I, would, I, I think a good definition of righteousness is it is the dynamic concern to bring about what is right and harmony for all our willing or all our willingness to, uh, to the disadvantage to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. In other words, it is a concern to bring about what is right and to bring harmony at the disadvantage of self for the good of others. Righteousness is doing what is right in God's eyes, which often means it will require a deep-rooted sacrifice of self. And in a, in a society that, that demands that you can do whatever you want to do, Make yourself the priority. Live out your dreams. Be what you want to be. 
we do not hear the language of, no, lay down your life for the good of others. An other-oriented uh, disposition is not natural uh, in our fallen state, and it's not even natural for us as Christians, but it is something that is the outworking of a righteousness now for us that is imparted to us by God. So yes, when we talk about righteousness, faith, um, faith in God, God impart, imputes it to him as righteousness. God grants to Abraham a righteousness that is not his, but the, the fulfillment of that righteousness is Abraham's obedience, his willingness to lay down his rights, lay down a life that would be to his advantage so that he can fulfill God's design and be a blessing to others. That's actually what election also means. It's being a conduit of God's purposes and plans. He has called you to be a conduit of blessing to others. It's very counterintuitive to the, how the world calls it to be. And to be blameless is not to be without sin. It's kind of like blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? It's not purity culture. Blessed are the pure in heart is not people that don't do bad things. Purity of heart is a wholehearted commitment to God. So I always use the illustration of you can be pure wine doesn't necessarily mean you're good wine. Um, that's not the point. The point is, is that I am wholly defined by this thing in spite of what I am. So I am surrendering my glitchy mixture self fully to the living God to be at His disposal. And that's what we have in Noah, is one who is other-oriented because he is in communion with God and he is wholeheartedly committed to God's plans and purposes. And because of this, God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But notice this. So here you have the mercy and severity of God, the severity of God's judgment upon sin. Sin there will be a point where God will say, sin shall go no farther. That is ultimately what the end of all things is. That is ultimately the very definition of what hell is. We think of hell as some sort of medieval torture chamber when instead of thinking about it, the God who is consistent with Himself, a God who is loving, a God who is love, um, will say to sin, it shall go no farther. It will no longer corrupt my creation. It will be contained. Uh, this, is, this shows its limitation and it also shows that there is a point. He is slow to anger, but there is a point where his patience comes to an end. And here is a point where it comes to an end. So there is a severity there, but there is also a mercy here because he is still in intimacy. He is still trusting himself to a human who is broken and sinful uh, and he is fulfilling his purposes and plans through this person so we see in noah the righteousness and blamelessness um, we see in god his mercy and severity but look at the commands and covenant of god and the election and trust in noah it says make yourself an ark of gopher wood nobody knows what that wood is um, by the way so i'm not going to guess make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the, of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the doors of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. And which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, I'm not going to get into the construction of the ark other than this, that the commands of God are very specific. They are detailed. Um, there is concern, and there is, there is reasoning behind it. But I promise you, for Noah, when he heard these things, he had no idea what God was talking about uh, in other words 
This isn't something that probably had been built before. Um, and so he is, this is the essence of faith. Uh, you have the, the significance that God is not just interested um, in saving you. He is interested in utilizing you, in inviting you into the heavenly council, if you will. He is interested in actually giving you um, direction for your life but that direction will not always make sense and can you imagine the scripture doesn't declare how long it took it doesn't declare it doesn't declare what it cost him to build such a thing um, it doesn't it doesn't talk about the probably the absolute mockery that um, he must have come under building a giant ship that was to house um, living all the living animals uh, I mean can you imagine the insanity that people like what is this guy doing I mean we've seen people do crazy things like why is this person doing this thing uh, but nothing to this scale I mean I am interested in why Zuckerberg has basically bought like an entire island in Hawaii and it's building a strange compound but it doesn't it pales in comparison to this uh, and this, this reality is, this is the call of faith, is that Jesus often says, follow me, and doesn't say where he is going. Faith is stepping into the dark onto a rock. And we need to understand this, that the commands of God, this is also the first time the word covenant is used. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but it says, it says here, but I will establish my covenant with you. The covenant is already in play. But this is the first time it's mentioned. He doesn't say, I will make a covenant with you. I will establish a covenant that was already in play. And this is, I think, goes back to the naming of Noah by his father, that there was a promise of God given that God would protect the very word that he gave to the woman, that through her seed, um, the serpent's head would be crushed. And so Noah now, his election... And I always say that election is not God choosing Noah and rejecting everyone else. No, God is choosing Noah as a means of being redemption and preserving his original intent of creation. Election is a task given by God. Like the disciples, I chose you. You did not choose me. He isn't giving them a commentary on the fact that he didn't choose other people. He's saying, I chose you so that through you, you can bring my gospel to the ends of the world. So here we have the, the election of Noah, but there's more than that. I think this is so profound. God is entrusting his plans to a frail human being. And I think that this tells us something about the nature and the upside-down realities of God is that God wants human covenant partners like you and I, and He will utilize, you know, D.L. Moody. Do you guys know anything about D.L. Moody? He was the, the great uh, late 19th century, uh, early, well, basically 19th century, late 19th century preacher. Uh, Civil War till the, right at the beginning of the 20th century. And he was an, an, an evangelist who shared the gospel, saw millions of conversions. He went over to the UK, and think about it, this is on ship. So <laughs> he went over and did these, these uh, revival crusades throughout, throughout England. He was mocked terribly by the church in England as being unrefined in his speech, uneducated, it was actually Spurgeon um, who came to his defense and said, we can say whatever we want about his, his lack of education or his usage, his, his poor mastery of the English language, but I don't see any of you being used by God the way that this man is being used. And it, Spurgeon's own wife sent Moody Spurgeon's Bible after Spurgeon died um, because he loved Moody so much. And Moody had such a massive impact in the UK. But God truly chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. But here is the thing with Moody. Moody heard a preacher once say, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man or woman who is fully surrendered to him. And Moody, who was just an uneducated shoe salesman in Chicago, said, I'm going to be that guy. 
And that was it. I'm going to be that guy. And you know what the first thing he did was? He wanted to teach Sunday school. So he goes to the church, and the church says, well, we don't have any kids. And he says, if I bring the kids, can I be the Sunday school teacher? And so what did Moody do? Kind of like Noah building an ark. It didn't make any sense. I don't recommend this today. You will be arrested. But he basically brought a donkey with a bag of candy around Chicago. Because remember, this is like the Industrial Revolution. Kids are working in factories at this point. So, you know, if you were poor in poverty, you probably aren't going to go to school. You're going to be working to help support your family. And Moody would go around these kids, these orphan kids, these broken kids on the streets of Chicago, and he would give them candy and rides on the donkey, and he would tell them about Jesus. And before he knew it, he had a massive Sunday school class, a massive. And then from there, the parents of these kids were so fascinated by what was going on they came to this and before you knew it moody now is running a massive church moody was so known for being so radically sold out to jesus that there is a famous story that his son tells in his uh, his son wrote a, a really fascinating biography of his father uh, that that I, i've read a couple times uh, super influential on me when i first got saved his son tells the story of moody walking up to a young man on the corner of the street in Chicago. And he says, young man, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And the young man said, it is none of your business. And he said, it is absolutely my business. And the young man said, then you must be D.L. Moody. <laughs> That's how known he was for his zealousness. But nobody questioned. If only... I, it's so rare to meet people that live with that kind of conviction about anything. We live in the, the age of irony, sarcasm, cynicism, uh, where pastors don't answer questions, but we, we teach by asking questions, poking at the foundations of truth because we're too embarrassed to take a stand. Um, the gospel is not something that we're to speculate about. The gospel is something we proclaim. It's a piece of news that we are not allowed to mess with. We're just heralds. I don't have to apologize to you for, for what Jesus says about himself, for the warnings that scriptures proclaim. I'm not going to because I'm just simply being obedient to be a conduit of the gospel in spite of all my own brokenness and my own glitches. I just want people to know Jesus because he really does save and he really does love you and he wants us wants to save us from the flood <laughs> that is, has been coming and is coming over our world. And that is the flood of evil and lies and the ways that we have, have taught ourselves to listen to so many voices, we can't even tell what direction we're going any longer. We don't know how to, to advance in the truth because the idea of truth has been so utterly demolished in our world that we've lost our way. No, Noah's re receiving the commands and entering into this covenant speaks of God's willingness to take His risk. Take a risk on us. Are you willing to step into that space? and be used by him. That's what I draw from this story. It's really the question of, can I be a life preserver for others? Can I be a person that says, come this way out of this dangerous place and come in to safety? Do we see people around us with the eyes of Jesus is the real question I'm asking you. Finally, and we'll close here, we see the protection and grace of God in the faith and obedience of Noah. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Once again, I want to just state again and again how significant the usage of those two words are throughout the chapter, opening chapters of Genesis. And God created them male and female, once again, our world has created its own reality 
and it is more comfortable living in a realm of they we're accused of listening to fiction and mythology when our science which is supposedly based upon fact is actually being thrown out the window and we are the inventors of mythologies and we are the inventors of fiction because the internal psychological self has become the supreme basis of existence today. And what I mean by that is whatever you feel inside that you are, that's what you are. But that is not truth, that's not reality, and it has created a psychological disaster amongst thousands. And the fact that the world is embracing fiction which is actually bringing about greater and greater violence to the heart, to the mind, um, and a diminishment of well-being um, to society. When, when we have, we have a, 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 a problem when it comes to the fact that we are no longer willing to call something by what it is because feelings actually are more important. Um, than facts and this is one of the great issues I think one of the greatest issues in the church today is not cold orthodoxy or you know over-the-top um, uh, charismatic experience I think that actually the greatest and most undermining thing happening in the church today is empathy gone unchecked where we are so moved by people's feelings that we no longer are willing to speak truth. In fact, we're willing to surrender truth because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or say anything that's uncomfortable. And in doing so, like our city pretending to care about the homeless, we might as well just be giving people guns and say, shoot yourself because I care about you. Because I feel like that's the logic of much of what's happening in the world today. But here we see the power of God, His protection and His grace, and the faith and obedience of Noah. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind and of all the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping things of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come to you and keep them alive. Also take with, them, with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this he did all that God commanded him. All that God commanded him. By faith, we're told in Hebrews, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, was moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of, right, of the righteousness which is according to faith. In other words, the prophetic... I, I love this, in preparing a, a salvation for his household, that entering into obedience to God became a sign of God's con condemnation on a world that rejected God. And don't think for a second, we can't read, assume that Noah was, this isn't like a, a perfect example of the church being closed off to the world. Hey, we're the few that get in the boat and it's closed off. No, he was building this for a long time. It's kind of like the story that Jesus says it is, it is similar and it is very similar in its structure as Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, I will save that. Abraham asked him again and again, how would you save the city for, for if there are 10 righteous? He said, yes. And the question has always been asked, why did he stop when he did? Um, but the fact is, is that there is a desire. God has come. He said, do not think I came to judge the world. I have come to save it. But people don't want salvation. They want independence. And Christianity is not a declaration of independence. It is a covenantal commitment to total dependence upon the living Christ. Noah did all that he asked. And it cost him a lot. It cost him a lot. And the question that people ask me all the time, if I follow Jesus, what will it cost me? And friends, I want to be absolutely clear. Everything. You think the, 
The greatest thing in my life, Darcy and I were just sharing this with the elders the other night over dinner, the greatest thing in my life, in our life together, has been starting this church. The most costly thing in my life and in Darcy's life has been starting this church. No greater joy or privilege or honor and nothing has taken a deeper toll on me physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually than trying to lead a church in a city like Portland. But none of that matters because eternity is at stake. My discomfort in the moment compared to an eternity with Jesus, I was telling Darcy today, it's so easy to start thinking, I got to get out of this. I, I need to be able to live my own life. I don't want to be responsible. I don't want to go anywhere in the city and have someone come up to you and go, Pastor Josh, I'm just a dude like everyone else trying, because you're all dudes, of course. Uh, I'm just trying to survive, trying to make sense of the world that I live in. I don't want to be a spokesperson. I don't want to be the preacher. And that's where the Lord's like, since when is this about what you want? Since when is this about your happiness? And are you really happy when you do what you want? Don't you remember what it was like before you got saved? I'm like, oh yeah, I was miserable. And when are you the most happy? When you're not thinking about yourself and being poured out. Oh, surprise. God's ways actually make sense. Your joy is not going to be found in your attempts at self-preservation. Self-preservation is a guarantee. Whoever wants to be first will be last. But whoever is last shall be first in the kingdom of God. Let us take note that God is a God who is actually looking for not just men and women to save, but He is looking for men and women who are willing to be covenantal partners with Him in His great redemptive purposes. That we would be a ship that invites people out of the flood and says, come in and be loved and experience the grace of Jesus. God may judge, but it says very clearly in Scripture that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And we are all wicked. And there are only two kinds of people in the economy of Jesus. Evil people that say yes to Him and evil people that say no. And so the only question I have for you today in closing is do you say yes to Jesus? Jesus is Lord. That is the great proclamation of the church. He is God in the flesh. And He has come to us and He says, pick up your cross and follow Me. And there is a cross to carry and each one has their own cross. So let us learn what it means to die to ourselves so that we can come alive in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.